Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. But for uh, all of us this morning, I invite you to turn me to Isaiah chapter 34. Isaiah chapter 34. We've been, um, those of you who are visiting with us or new to our church, we have been teaching through this um, massive book, <laughs> but we're doing it in larger larger sections, especially in the middle part here. We're looking at select chapters. And um, last Sunday, we began uh, looking at chapters 28 to 39 in a more kind of holistic way. Uh, And the theme of these chapters from chapter 28 all the way down to chapter 39 is this theme of faith toward God, faith toward God. God's people are those, we said, who trust him. They trust him. Uh, trusting in him, uh, and, and as they trust in him, they demonstrate that that faith in a life of heartfelt obedience. It's a life of obedience that reaches down to the most practical levels of our day-to-day experience. And the, the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah during the reign of Hezekiah, which is what's going on at this portion of Isaiah's ministry, uh, that reign spanned from the latter uh, uh, the waning years of the 8th century B.C. into the beginning years of the 7th century B.C. In that time, the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, um, they were, uh, Israel and Judah both maintained kind of just a passing acquaintance with God and his word. There was really no, um, there was no re- desire to allow God and his word to kind of hold court over their hearts and lives. Uh, it was a it was not a spiritually vital time in the life of either one of those um, nations. And since God and His Word were not in the driver's seat, worldly wisdom and living by our wits and um, working the system that became the default. That's how. Uh, that's what took over, and that was the situation on Isaiah's day, and and the, such as is common to us even today. Um, it is just. Uh, just a huge temptation for us. When God is not in the driver's seat, um, we try to grab the wheel. Uh, When we don't believe and trust in his promises, uh, human policies and strategies always fill the vacuum that's left behind. We have to be careful of that. And so these chapters essentially, um, in many kind of repetitive ways, call us to this and call us to the same question, which is, will you build your life on God and his promises or... Will you construct the life of your own design, relying on worldly strategies and policies? In other words, you could probably sum up the the question as simply, will you live by faith or will you live by your works? If you choose to live by faith, Isaiah tells us, you will reap divine rest and repose for your weary soul. But if you choose to go your own path, then you will reap divine retribution as all of us fall desperately short of God's blazing holiness. Now, these chapters, which we said deal with a a number of historical events, and we're going to get into that. We'll see that specifically in uh, in chapters 36 to 39. These chapters are meant to be faith builders for us as the reader. It was meant to be that for its original audience, and it's meant to do that for us. Isaiah is revealing to us something profound in these chapters. Chapters. He is revealing something substantial, weighty about God's character in order to stir up within us a genuine faith, a genuine trust in the Holy One of Israel. Now, we said you can break these two chapters down into two sections, these chapters down into two major sections. The first is in 28 to 35, 
And the second, which we'll get to in a few weeks, is 36 to 39. A good portion of the content of 28 to 35 is essentially, to borrow Isaiah's imagery, tilling the ground, tilling the ground for us to make sense of all the historical details that are going to unfold as we look at Hezekiah's uh, sickness and, and his restoration, as well as Judah's deliverance at, from the hand of Assyria. And so last Sunday, we drilled down on just one of what is ultimately six sermonic warnings that Isaiah gives through chapters 28 to 33. He he uses this repetition, uh, introductory phrase, woe to you, and then he kind of names a group or woe to them, woe to this. And so these words of woe are kind of repeated throughout 28 to 33. And we just looked at chapter 28 in some detail, which we said in many ways is representative of the others. We don't need to go into a lot of detail on each and every one of them. But throughout each of these words of woe, Isaiah is alternating even in that, those sections between threat and promise. So you see threat and then a word of promise and threat and promise. And he's kind of seesawing back and forth over and over again in in these sections. And then in chapters 34 to 35, which kind of function almost as an appendix, it give, we, we see an ultimate woe and an ultimate word of promise. There's a promise of divine restoration and blessing. In other words, he is summarizing God's judgment for the end of the age and his promised restoration at the end of the age. And so, in a sense, those two chapters are like the final hammer strikes that just drive that nail of the the message of this, this whole section into our hearts. It drives that message home. And the message is this, that trust in human power is ultimately foolishness our only and ultimate hope is to trust in the Lord as king. That, that's the message, that's the, that's the theme of these chapters. And as Isaiah speaks about God's final judgment and his ultimate salvation, we are left again with a choice. What do you want your eternal inheritance to be? Do you want it to be one of divine devastation or, as we'll see in chapter 35, redeemed rejoicing? Will you be swept up in God's eternal wrath against the nations, or will you delight yourself in Zion's happy future? That's the choice. The the contrast between 34 and 35 could not be more stark. I mean, it's just, there's almost a complete reversal in 35 from what you read in 34. And and, And how we approach those chapters and interpret them, and others like them, these, uh, for example, chapters 24 to 27. How we um, approach them, how we interpret them, really makes all the difference whether they're rightly understood and spiritually profitable for us, or whether they leave us disoriented or maybe even worse, distracted. God's prophetic messengers, not just Isaiah, but others as well, faced really an impossible task. And you think about it. On the one hand, they had to convince hard-hearted unbelievers that that God would really judge, that he was truly going to discipline them, and that he was ultimately going to render punishment for their rebellion and their rejection of the law. 
He had to convince hard-hearted sinners that God would judge. On the other hand, at the same time, they had to convince faint-hearted believers that God would save them, that God would renew them, that he would ultimately restore his people and make good on his covenant promises. So to be able to do both of those things, they had to pull a whole range of rhetorical tools off the shelf in their prophetic workshop to get the job done. Those tools, among others, include announcements of judgment. It's a kind of a, a formal declaration of judgment. Uh, oracles of salvation or, or words of salvation, as well as apocalyptic styles of communication. They were not limited in the ways that they communicated. There were multiple tools that they could draw from. God's prophetic messengers, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, the Twelve, even the Apostle John, who in many ways functions as a prophet, closing up the canon of Scripture, they were entering the marketplace, proverbially speaking, to proclaim God's message, but that message rarely found any interested buyers. Ahaz, remember we saw in chapter 7, Ahaz turned a deaf ear to Isaiah's call to faith in chapter 7. Judah stubbornly refused to heed Micah's call for justice, mercy, and humility before God in Micah chapter 6. Amaziah, the priest, tossed Amos out of the temple at Bethel in Amos chapter 7. John we read the opening verses of Revelation, found himself exiled on the island of Patmos, he says, for the word of the Lord. And the list goes on and on and on. The writer of Hebrews basically sums up the market for prophetic utterance in Hebrews 11, verses 36 to 38. It's, the writer of Hebrews says, the prophets experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. <laughs> that, was the, that was the market for the prophets and their message. The prophets listened to God's voice and then gathering up the message they received under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they then used creative poetry and unforgettable imagery to capture their audience and our attention. And the hope was, that the desire was, that at least for some, that God's truth might actually shine brighter than all the kind of shiny stuff, but vain stuff that the world is selling. And so the prophets essentially, by necessity, used unique and powerful ways of speaking with the intention of transforming our thinking. The prophetic word is intentionally affective. Okay? What do I mean by that? I don't mean effective. I mean affective with an A. Affective. What do I mean? I mean it's intentionally designed to appeal to the emotion. And that appeal to our emotion is meant to shape our values. And as our values are shaped in a Godward direction, that in turn impacts our conduct, our will, and our behavior. So the prophet's words are intentionally affective. 
uh, think of the way a carefully edit, edited movie or film with perfectly chosen music can portray a scene of intense drama. We've all probably seen that. And even without saying any words at all, can speak right to the soul. And that's what a film can do when it's artfully crafted. That's what the prophets are doing with their words. They are painting God and his judgments and his saving works on the canvas of our minds, leaving impressions that will linger way long after they stop speaking. Just, I mean, just read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read the book of Revelation. Images just dance around in your head. Some of these images, you just cannot shake them. Look, I mean, look at chapter 34 for just a moment, verse 6. Describing the Lord's future judgment, he says, The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Or look at chapter 35 and in verse 8 on the flip side in terms of God's, rev, uh, God's restoration of all things. It says, a highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. I mean, these are rich images they're graphic. Figures of speech in the prophets abound. Similes, metaphors, metonymy. Metonymy is um, when one thing kind of stands for the whole, like the White House, and that refers to like the entire administration. Hyperbole, personification, irony, repetition, rhythm, parallelism, all of the rhetorical tools are pulled off the shelf by the prophets to communicate God's truth. But how we interpret those forms of divine revelation must take their function into account. Otherwise, we'll walk away with the wrong understanding, or we'll walk away completely confused. The common form, and this is just kind of communication 101, the common form, style, and subject matter of the medium dictates how you interpret it. For example, proverbs in the scriptures are not promises. They're truisms. If you take them as divine promises, you will be sorely disappointed. <laughs> narrative, historical narrative, doesn't primarily tell us how to do things. It's not how you find it. You don't go to Genesis 22 to find a wife, right? They tell us what and why and by whom. We do this in everyday life. I mean, we don't even think about it, but we, we interpret the medium based on its common form, style, and subject matter. If you read an opinion piece as if it is straight news, or you interpret the claims of an advertisement as if they're objective statements of fact, you will misinterpret the message and come away with the wrong conclusion. I always think of the movie Elf. He sees, the world, he sees this dumpy coffee shop in New York, he says, and it says, world's greatest cup of coffee, and he busts through the door, and he says, congratulations, you know, because he doesn't understand it's just an advertisement. Political cartoons that sketch world leaders or world events in figurative, imaginative, even bizarre ways, 
They are not meant to be understood and interpreted as if they are photographs. You know, President Reagan never rode on a donkey, right? Of course not. No one, no one even thinks about that because the medium dictates how it is understood and interpreted. The common form, style, subject matter of the medium mandates how we are to approach it and interpret it. And it's the same with the prophetic portions of Scripture. Unless we understand their unique characteristics, we are likely to make major, major errors in our study and our application of them. And those mistakes tend to fall under one of kind of two headings. On the one hand, we can prematurely throw up our hands and just kind of give up. You know, this is just beyond me. I, 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 I can't understand any of it. I'm just going to ignore it all. Or we can also, uh, try in, in, in our attempt to understand it, tag and identify, identify every little tree and as a result get lost in the forest. There are interpretive errors for us to the left and to the right, and we want to be careful. And so my goal this morning was initially to make this just a part of the message, but it's going to be the message, is that I want to give you guidelines for interpreting the prophets. I want to give you basically um, guidelines for profiting from the prophets. And uh, I've got eight of them. which is not great homiletical. Uh, you should never have more than probably three or four points, but I've got eight, so they'll, they'll move quickly. But, but I want us to consider the guidelines that, that God, and I'm just kind of synthesizing uh, a number of resources on um, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just a fancy word for um, your system of interpretation. Uh, and in how we approach the prophets is different from how we approach historical narrative. It's different from how we ex- approach the Psalms and poetry. It's different from how we approach, um, you know, other portions of Scripture. So we need to be um, aware of these, and hopefully, hopefully, this will allow us some consistency and some benefit. I think this will provide tremendous spiritual benefit and clarity for when we read the prophets, so that we can read them profitably. We can read them for our own spiritual benefit. So I'm going to give you eight. Guidelines, and we're going to look at some passages as we go through, and hopefully, when we're done, it'll uh, things will be a little bit clearer. The first guideline that you need to understand to profit from the prophets is you need to be sensitive to the richness of prophetic imagery. You need to be sensitive to the richness of prophetic imagery. The prophets don't often; they, sometimes they do, but they don't often give straightforward analytical statements of salvation and judgment. They, they end up stringing together image after image after image, weaving a literary tapestry that communicates a true but more holistic understanding of God's future plans. So, an example, look at Isaiah chapter 32 and verses 12 to 14. Just a couple of chapters back, Isaiah says to the to, to Judah, beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up, yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken, hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks. What he's saying there is he's using... Uh, he's describing their exile. 
as God will come and haul them away in, 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 as a result of their covenant unfaithfulness. And he, notice how he piles all these different images on top of each other to show that Judah will be turned into a wasteland in a desert because no one will be there. They'll be hauled away. He could have just said, the Assyrians will come and drag you off. But that's not what he says. He describes a land in which, which there is weeping. And he describes a situation where all that they had known would be taken away. And animals would fill in the void. On the flip side, look at chapter 35, again in verses 1 to 2. This is speaking of God's future restoration of the creation. He says, the wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Aravah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Again, Isaiah describes God's future restoration of the creation here in terms of almost like a new exodus as you get further down, verses 8 to 10. But the picture is the same. God's people are pilgrims making their way to the promised land. But instead of looking at barren desert like the Israelites did during the the exodus recorded in, in the Old Covenant, here it is blossoming and flourishing. The imagery abounds. Now, the imagery is not at odds with a consistent, literal, historical, grammatic system of interpretation. The imagery is not at odds. It's important to remember that figurative expressions communicate literal truths. So figurative language is not antithetical. It's not hostile to literal interpretation. It's a part of it. It's a part of it. An interpretation is literal when it corresponds to what the author intends to convey with his statement. The prophets, though, are, we have to be, uh, understand that they are intensely literary. That is to say, they use a ton of figures of speech and metaphor and hyperbole and irony and personification. And what that does is draw the listener, the reader, in. It, 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 it draws these compelling scenes so that they can experience what God is going to do in an immersive way. Um, if you want to watch a, a blockbuster action film, you go and watch it in IMAX 3D. Right? That's the technology of the day. You watch it on the biggest screen with the sharpest picture, with the most skull-rattling surround sound. Why? Because you want to just take it in. You want to you be there when whatever the action is doing, whatever that's going, whatever's going on. That's what the prophets are in Scripture. They are like the IMAX 3D portions of God's revelation. And so, so we just need to understand that as we approach the prophets, that we need to be sensitive to the richness of the imagery. A second principle to kind of give you as we approach to profit from the prophets, don't look for something in the prophetic word that it doesn't intend to disclose. Don't look for something in the prophetic word that it is not intending to disclose. Now, it doesn't mean that what they say is not important. The prophets always have something important to communicate because we know all scripture is God-breathed and all of it is, is beneficial, profitable. But oftentimes... 
it's more hope for the future than detailed information about the future as we approach the prophets. Say that again. Most oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it's more hope for the future than a detailed information about the future. The prophets are intentionally vivid, giving us this literary shock treatment, bombarding us with these bold and, 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 and rich images. Why? To take our attention and the audience's attention away from all the trials and tribulations that they face in a sin-cursed world. And, and to give us then a sure hope that God will emerge victorious despite how dire things look. So, just as we approach the prophets, we need to see them more often as providing hope for the future than giving us exceptionally detailed information about the future. Thirdly, alongside that second kind of principle of profiting from the prophets, seek to understand the main point of the prophetic text. Seek to understand the main point of the prophetic text. The prophets tend to be like an impressionistic painter. If you know anything about art history, Impressionistic painters don't paint real photos, right? They leave us with an overall sense of the future. And that's what the prophets do. They leave us an overall sense of the future, a true sense, yes, a trustworthy sense, absolutely, a literal sense, but a sense nonetheless. So if you stand too close to a Van Gogh painting or a Monet or a Renoir painting, and you try and examine every little detail of the artist's work, you fail to grasp what the picture is intended to present. And it's the same with the prophets. Proper interpretation seeks to understand the big picture, the meaning of the whole rather than the meaning of every little part. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes the details in the prophets are just for effect. They're just... To, to create a sense. For example, when Isaiah describes what the world will be like when God's final judgment is unleashed, listen to how he describes it in chapter 30, Isaiah 34, verses 10 to 14. He says, It will not be quenched. God's wrath will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. From generation to generation it will be desolate. None will pass through it forever and ever. But pelican and hedgehog will possess it, and owl and raven will dwell in it, and he will stretch over it the line of desolation and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is none, no one there whom they may proclaim king, and all its princes will be nothing. Thorns will come up in its fortified towers, nettles and thistles in its fortified cities. It will also be a haunt of jackals and an abode of ostriches. The desert creatures will meet with the wolves. The hairy goat will cry to its kind, Yes, the night monster will settle there and will find herself a resting place. The, the detailed list of animals, for example, in the latter verses there, that is not some kind of puzzle for us to decipher. You know, what is a pelican supposed to be represented? What is a hedgehog? What is the owl with jackals? It's simply to illustrate that when God's final judgment is unleashed, it will be comprehensive. It will be comprehensive. Life as it was known before will never be the same. Isaiah describes various wild animals moving in and settling down, filling the void where humans once dwelt. Why? Because that's how comprehensive God's judgment will be. They will no longer be disturbed by humans. 
what matters is not the every little detail, though every detail paints a picture. The point is we need to understand the big picture. Jesus does this, some, something very similar with his parables. Um, a number of his parables uh, fill in all these details. It's just a spiritual principle being illustrated with a story, and that story is something that everyone would have understood. So when he says, for example, in Matthew 13, verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid three pecks, uh, hid three, three pecks into until all was leavened. Like, that's just a story that illustrates what the kingdom of heaven is like. The, three, the number three and leaven and the significance, that's not the point. It's just, it's like that. So we don't want to get bogged down in the details. Not every detail is of equal importance. Jesus is simply trying to illustrate a singular spiritual lesson through the use of his story. So it is with the prophets. The details are not allegorical, meaning that each and every detail doesn't have a real-world corresponding reality. It's not Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> but unfortunately, in our, in our church circles, it can be handled that way at times. And that's how people end up mistakenly scrolling through the news of the day with their Bibles open in the book of Revelation, trying to figure out where the latest geopolitical event or natural disaster fits on the prophetic timeline. It's a waste of time. That is not how we approach the prophets. We need to understand the big picture. So we need to be mindful of the richness of imagery. We don't need to look uh, at uh, every detail uh, to see something that's not the prophets aren't meant to communicate. We are to look at the main point. Fourth, keep a number of options open for how prophetic predictions will be fulfilled. Keep a number of options open for how prophetic predictions will be fulfilled. Church history is littered with well-meaning and sincere students of the Bible who claimed that this war or that world leader or this pope was the beginning of the Great Tribulation or the Antichrist or the false prophet that is described in Revelation and so forth. And a hundred years later, when that conflict has long since ended, and that empire has long since crumbled into the sea, and that pope has been dead and buried like the dozens who came before them, lo and behold, their predictions have proven false. All we can say for sure today is what will unfold, not who specifically will be doing it. That's all we can say definitively. Whenever, whenever the final chapter of God's kingdom plan unfolds, it will unfold quickly, it will unfold decisively, and God will use whatever individuals and nations are in existence at that time to judge the wicked, save a remnant of his chosen people, uh, uh, raise the righteous, and establish his glorious kingdom. Like that, we know. And that's all we can say for sure at this time. So we need to keep options open for how prophetic predictions will be fulfilled. Fifth, a fifth principle for profiting from the prophets. Read the prophets within their historical contexts, which are often a context of crisis. Read the prophets within their historical context, which are often contexts of crisis. The political, religious, social fabrics of Israel and Judah were often often in these centuries, the kind of 8th century to the 4th century B.C., were often in decline and decay. Threats abounded externally 
in terms of like other nations coming against them. But there were also many threats internally from corrupt leadership and wickedness and false worship and all kinds of things that ran unchecked. We, we kind of forget how unsettling all that is, how, how, how disruptive that is. When Isaiah is writing 34 to 35, you have to understand the Assyrians, which they were like the superpower of the day, they are on the march. They have already hauled off the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. Egypt, who was supposed to be their kind of ally and protector, hung them out to dry. And now Assyria is moving up the coastline, going south, en route to Egypt, and they are raiding and pillaging various cities and communities throughout Judah as they go. And then, and then they make an approach on Jerusalem, David's city threatening to wipe it off the map. We'll read about that in chapters 38 and 30, uh, excuse me, 36 to 37 and 38 to 39. It, watching all this unfold would have tempted God's people to doubt his promises. I mean, God said he was going to make a great nation out of them. God said he was going to, uh, you know, make them great, that they would be a light to the nations and so forth that David would always have a man on the throne. I mean, they see all that, and there's, they don't see any of that happening. So it would have caused them to doubt. The intended audience of the prophets were often people overwhelmed to the point of despair. They were people blinded by their rebellion and sin. And so Isaiah and Hosea and Daniel and the like, they sought to communicate heavenly encouragement to those who were hopeless, reminding them, stand tall in faith. Don't give up. Or sometimes they were communicating the need for holy fear because they were hardening their hearts and would soon be broken. But the point is that the context of that is one of crisis. We need to understand the prophets in their context. A sixth principle for profiting from the prophets, be content. Be content with some mystery. Be content with some mystery. The aesthetic beauty of the prophets are meant to grip our souls. It's meant to grip our souls. It's meant to inform our minds, and then we said it's meant to move our wills to a greater knowledge and obedience of God. If we flatten everything out and remove all the mystery, it defrauds the prophets of their richness and their power. It's much, the, it's much the same way that explaining a joke ruins it and makes it not humorous. By the way, don't do that. <laughs> or the way sitting on the beach explaining all the physical properties and processes of light passing through the atmosphere ruins the glory and the joy of taking in a beautiful sunset. Right? We, you just don't need to explain it all to appreciate it for it to have an effect. And so when Isaiah says, as he does in chapter 34 and verse 4, that all the hosts of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll and all their hosts will wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. When he tells us what God's judgment will be like, I don't need to know and neither do you what that will be exactly. It's, it's, it's some kind of cosmic upheaval but I can't button all that up with a scientific explanation. 
I don't know what that's going to look like, nor is it necessary for us to do so for its true meaning to be understood and the truth of God's word to do its convicting, comforting, and edifying work. I'm content to say, what's that going to look like? And I would say, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. The mystery of God's plan will become clear as that plan unfolds, just like it's always done throughout the history of redemption. Heretics often are the ones trying to get rid of all the mysteries. How do we understand God and man and human flesh being one? Well, there's a lot of heretical ways that you can, you can affirm that to get rid of the mystery. But all we can say is that he is truly God and truly man in one divine person. You know, we don't, it, that's all we can say about it. And so it is with the prophets. We need to be careful that we don't flatten out all the mystery and then, then lose its prophetic power. A seventh principle for profiting from the prophets Rather than prompting us to decipher a detailed chronology for the future, the prophets are actually inviting us to a response in the present. Understand that rather than prompting us to decipher a detailed, and there's not no chronology, but there's not always a detailed chronology for the future. Rather, the prophets are really inviting us to a, a present response. I mean, they're given for our benefit. That is to say, the prophets always challenge us as Believers towards sanctified living. Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. I mean, that's the takeaway from Isaiah 53, 54, and 55. The prophets teach us that God, for example, is present. That he is not only transcendent, but he's imminent. He sees, he cares, and one day by his sovereign power, he will transform all trial and adversity into something glorious for his people. The prophets, even announcements of judgment by the prophets are meant to be God's prologue, not his finale. Right? They're meant to communicate that God is just and holy, but that justice, that holiness is tempered by his mercy and his grace. There's hope for those who will turn back to him in faith. If not in the near term, at least as, his, as the audience is receiving that message, most certainly in eternity. The prophets cause us to contemplate how great God is, to stand in awe of him, to worship him as we consider his control of all things. They comfort the faithful as we're given new hope that this sin-stained world is going to eventually be drawn to a close. They comfort the faithful. that The prophets tell us of a new age when God will, God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that's what's coming. These gripping scenes that we uh, see in Revelation of heavenly conflict clashing with earthly wickedness remind us that what we're experiencing on earth is simply a part of the larger conflict that's always existed since Genesis 3 between God and Satan. Right? We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. 
We understand that. And because we understand that, then it braces our souls. It strengthens our resolve because we understand that even if persecution comes, even if, even if suffering and trials become so intense, so absolutely unsustainable that we have to give up our lives for the testimony of Jesus Christ, we have a better country, as the writer of Hebrews says, a heavenly one. And so the vivid descriptions of God himself coming to earth to right every wrong, punish the wicked, to renew the creation, that encourages God's people to be patient. We don't need to make that happen. The lamb who was slain will once again stand on Mount Zion. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to happen. The things of this world are fleeting, they are stained with sin, but if you remain steadfast, the prophets tell us one day you'll be blessed with the glory of unveiled sight of the risen Savior in a new heaven, in a new earth. But when you get bogged down with prophecy charts and arguing with other brothers and sisters in Christ about minute details of timelines or futilely trying to connect all the dots of current events to biblical realities, you for, what you're doing is you're forfeiting the gracious opportunity afforded you by the Spirit of God to put the trials and difficulties of life in the proper perspective. You're, 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 the prophets invite us, it's like a ticket for a roller coaster ride through the heavens into the future where we get just a glimpse of what is to come beyond our present problems. But, we only get to really enjoy it if we'll put our phones down long enough to look up. You see these people that, I remember, I love watching sports, and you see these folks when these amazing sporting events are happening, these amazing accomplishments, you know, NBA Finals, and you know, there's 10 seconds left, and down by one point, and you see these, you see these kids that are sitting there on their phones scrolling while all these amazing things are happening around. It's like, look up, look up, put your phone away. You pay, you're, they're sitting courtside. <laughs> Parents probably paid $5,000 for the ticket, maybe even more. That's what we do. We're so busy looking at all the details, we don't even get to enjoy the ride. Lastly, an eighth principle, eighth kind of a concluding and eighth principle, to profit from the prophets. The prophets point us to the greater and perfect son of David in whom the promises of salvation will be realized. The prophets point us to the greater and perfect son of David in whom the promises of salvation will be fully realized. Just in Isaiah alone, we learn of Jesus' virgin birth. We learn of his everlasting reign. We learn of his substitutionary sacrifice for sinners we see details expounded about his triumphant return to establish his kingdom. In the book of Micah, we learn the place of Jesus' birth, when it was going to happen. In Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we learn of the new covenant promises that Jesus ratified by his shed blood on the cross. In Daniel, we see Jesus receiving an eternal kingdom from his heavenly Father. In Hosea, we see his exile into Egypt prophesied before it ever happened, and on and on it goes. Just all the promises of God, of Messiah, in the prophets. Peter was right. Peter was right in 1 Peter 1 
in verses 10 and 12 when he tells 10 to 12 when he tells us the prophets of old indeed they said they prophesied of the grace that would come and they were not serving themselves he says but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven he said things into which angels long to look the good news of jesus christ that he came into the world to save sinners and he did so by his substitutionary death, burial, and victorious resurrection, that's something that the holy angels want to study intently, and it doesn't even apply to them. How much more should those of us who have been saved by the blood of Christ and faith in him long to look at those things that are contained in the prophets and the gospels and everywhere else in Scripture? The Old Testament is God's record of his faithfulness. And in the first coming of Jesus, salvation is made ever more sure. We see that in the Gospels. And while we have, as believers, received a, a down payment, an, an, an earnest payment of the salvation blessings that have been secured by Christ, we've received that now by the Spirit's work in our hearts, sealing us, the fullness of our inheritance is yet to come. It's still future. When Christ returns and establishes his kingdom and makes all things new. And it is then, at that time, that God's blessings, which have been, as uh, Psalm 23 says, of his mercy and loving kindness, which have been chasing us our whole lives, they will over, it will overtake us. Sorrow will be exchanged for joy and covenant promises will become covenant reality. This is how we profit from the prophets. Well, we, need to, we need to understand these principles. And then as we come to the text, with the Lord's help and his wisdom, and the wisdom of the church through the ages, we are able to benefit and be built up. And I pray that these principles will serve as well as we continue on in our in our study and preparations. For next Sunday, read 34 and 35. Never actually got to it today. I was just kind of writing and writing and writing, and then I was like, well, that's a sermon. <laughs> so no one wants to be here for two hours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these um, reminders, and I, I would pray uh, that you would help us to, um, with kind of taking these principles to heart, that we would be given a kind of a fresh set of eyes as we look at these portions of Scripture. Uh, give us a desire to read the prophets such that we would benefit from them in the ways that they had intended. And uh, Lord, forgive us for the ways that we've made those mistakes in the past and help us to, be, help us to, um, to see Christ uh, and, to, and to understand the hope that is portrayed and and help us to see the big picture of things and to really delight in the imagery, you know, just like a good book or a beautiful musical composition or something. There's an aesthetic aspect to the prophets, Lord, that really is a joy. It should give us um, delight, and may that be true uh, for us as we study your word. Lord, help us along this way, this path, as we study Isaiah, just so much truth contained in its in his pages, and we thank you for it. We ask your blessing on all that. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.